There's gold in these here moments. But the lesson was, was that we dared to win. We did something different. Yeah, and if I stick my hand in the water or I touch the boat, all of a sudden I can't be anywhere else. I think about what I need to be doing now. To me, that's massively helpful because you start to take action. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show's Olympic Special. I got my mojo working. Hey everybody and welcome to the Olympic edition of the Mojo Radio Show. It is one of our favourite times of the year when the Olympics are on. We're glued to the box like everybody else around the world. Huge sporting event. And over the last couple of years, Robbo and I have had on quite a few Olympians and I think we have to agree that we've taken a lot of gold from our Olympians have been across any either one, they've been on the podium, or they've taken valuable lessons from the Olympics. So this is our Olympic edition. We're going to track back through some of our favorite guests who were Olympians and extract the gold from their gold. So welcome back to the man behind the panel, the man driving the big golden bus that is the <laughs> Mojo Radio Show, Robbo. How are you? Man, going good. This is a good show, and i got to say, tracking back through some of the great Olympians that we have had on the show. It was, I've got to say honestly, really hard to extract the golden gold because oh. there was so much great stuff. It's crazy, it. isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. When you listen back to these guys, you understand the difference in mentality between the average guy on the street like you and me and the way these guys think because they're just out there, aren't they? They are, and it's all good. It's stuff we can access. It's stuff yeah. we can oh, do. Totally. Should, yeah. should we choose to do it? Yeah. So we've gone back picked out the bits that we loved, packaged it up into mm. a show all about the Olympics. It's all gold. Mm. And we thought maybe what, mate, before we start, should we just get a little bit of a taster? Should we just put ourselves in the mood? Well, I think get, we get should. Get our own mojo going? I, I was actually going to ask you, what's your favourite Olympic moment? What's the one that springs to mind for you? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I just last week heard an interview with one of the guys that was in the American relay team that said they were going to smash the Australian relay team. This is going back a couple of years ago. They're going to smash us like guitars. This would be 2000 you're talking about, Sydney Olympic Games. It was, yeah. yeah. And he talked back. He was in that race. He was the lead-out swimmer for the American team. He talked through what happened with Gary Hall Jr. So um, that was a great moment in Australian swimming history. Should we yeah. start off with that just to, to warm us up? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I actually happen to have the, the final sort of, you know, 50, 50 metres or so of that swim right here. Harper's coming out after Hall. Their matching strikes now. Thorpe on terms with Hall. They've got about 15 metres to swim. Thorpe is over Hall again. Hall and Thorpe. Thorpe's in front. Thorpe and Hall. Thorpe goes in. Australia win. New world record. We have just, the Australians have just broken the American stranglehold on this race. The roof is lifting off this stadium. <laughs> Now, now that guy there, I can't remember his name, but that last guy is actually uh, uh, was actually an ex-Olympic swimmer. I can't remember who it was. D did you notice the way he checked himself there? He goes, we have just blown the – the Australians have just won the <laughs> – I just love yeah. how much he's in the moment. I think that's awesome. <laughs> that's just a great Olympic moment, isn't it? That does yeah. make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. It's, it's great, great, isn't it? Great, great moment. Absolutely. What a legend. 
What a champion. The Mojo Radio Show's Olympic special. So we've we've had a number of Olympic guests on the show, as I've said, and mm. what we have found with the number of downloads and the feedback we get from our listeners is they are fascinated by Olympic thinking. So to start us off, Mate, let's uh, let's go on our triple gold medal winner, a guy called Drew Ginn, who was a recent guest on the show. Mm. He was part of one of Australia's great rowing dynasties. He was part of the awesome foursome and won gold in a several Olympics. When I asked him about how do you bring yourself to the moment when it's all on the line, you've been training for four, eight years, you put it all on the line, how do you bring yourself to the moment? And here's what he said. Talk me through how an athlete like yourself, you're at the games, you've trained now for four, or in some cases people have trained for two games for eight years to get to a certain moment. Tell me the process or systems that you used or you observed in others that were the most powerful. Yeah, Gary, I think the thing for me, and I'll, I'll sort of um, use an example around Mike Mackay, the original Awesome Forsome, and what I saw in him was someone who was highly active at looking at the past experience um, and trying to understand where the gaps were, where the overlaps were, um, looking at the past experience, working out whether whether the good things that worked and the things that didn't work, um, highly active at going back in time or into memories, also highly active at going forward as well um, and going forward in terms of sort of trying to map out the scenarios and the goods and bads of how things would work. The challenge with that that I saw with Mike in particular was because he spent so much time in forward and, and rear projection, I suppose, in that sort of sense, it meant that at times it was hard for him to get back in the moment and just let all that be. Um, what I heard him say a lot of is, you know, we do everything we possibly can to be 100% prepared. Now, that didn't mean that every single day was perfect. But also in that, what I think the training that I noticed with him was that when it came time, his exercise, and he used a Bunker quote, I think Bunker's, uh, Sergei Bunker was uh, the pole holder, yeah. And his coach uh, had a quote for him, which is, if not now, when? If not, me, who? You know, and, and Mike actually wrote uh, me and now um, on his foot stretcher in the 1996 Olympic Games. And I reckon that was the symbolic reminder of all the past now doesn't matter and all the possible futures don't matter, but rather get in the moment, do the things that we're going to do that. And the, the thing in a sporting sense, and I, I learned this obviously hearing guys like Mike talk a lot about the preparation was doing everything from understanding how um, your past experience can help support you, but it can also hold you back. And then also understanding how the speculation of the future can give you a great sense of possibility, but can also stop you from jumping forward and having a, a leap of faith to things. So the, the balance to all that is making sure you can keep practicing and getting in the here and now. And the simple exercise for me uh, on the water has always been stick my hand in the water. Yeah, and if I stick my hand in the water or I touch the boat or I feel the oar and I pay attention to my foot stretcher or I notice my breathing, all of a sudden I can't be anywhere else. You know? So those thoughts of forward and those thoughts of behind and even those thoughts of positive and negative um, judgment about the experience, they disappear very, very quickly. And even if you put your hand in the water and you think, oh, that's cold, that's bad, you've got to catch yourself straight away to say, hold on, no, it's just water. And it's just a temperature and it's not good or bad. And so I think what Mike had as a symbol for him was, you know, this message in front of him to remind him that you'd done all this great work in preparation for. And my one was very much the physical uh, kinesthetic thing of, you know, feel the water, feel the oil handle, notice my breath, notice the things around. So sitting on the start line, I remember this vividly in 1999, and just looking around and being with James Tompkins and sort of going, 
how cool is this? Like all this stuff is here for <laughs> us as athletes to do what we do. So the nervousness for me um, was, was a natural anxiety for what was going to be required of you. But the nervousness only ever came, the anxiety only ever came when you were jumping either too far forward and seeing all the things that could go wrong <laughs> or you were living in the past thinking about you know, all the mistakes you might have made that you want to try to avoid to make now. And that would just sort of send this anxiety spin uh, very quickly. And so I remember sitting on the start line just going to myself, how awesome is this? Like I've got the best rowing partner in the world. I've got a great boat. You know, the starters are there. The people have put the boys out in the course. They've got a great group of competitors to race against. And just that sense of, I suppose, gratitude for everything that's there, that changed it dramatically. And, and, and for me, I couldn't help but be in the moment there and then. And interesting enough, we talk about flow or being in the zone in sport. That particular race, and, and like the 96 experience, I remember having so much of the race unfold where time sort of seemed sent to slow, physicality didn't seem to be uh, as, um, as, as, as hard or as intense as what it had been. And so there's a softening, I think, when you're in the moment where you're not judging all the things that are happening, you're just letting them be. And, um, and it's not to be esoteric, but it is certainly to sort of realise that we are high-processing people, cognitive people, and, um, and often we're processing about things that aren't actually happening right here, right now. And that brings something into the here and now that maybe we don't need. It's funny, that to me was one of the most profound pieces I've heard mm. of someone being able to articulate exactly how you get into the moment. And I've used mm. that piece so often in my own world by just mm. stopping and looking at something, touching something, smelling something and just stopping. And as he said, when you put your hand in the water, it's not hot or cold, it's just water. It's just be there. And mm. I um, I thought it was great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clever stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, you know, we spoke about the footy, the footy mate of mine who used to sort of put his, grab some yeah. a handful of dirt and rub his hands. I mean, you know, it's a similar thing. And, but it's just, it's just the simple things that make you stop and think, okay, you know, I've, I've been here before, I can do this, you know, and I'm ready to go. I think that's great. Another guy that I... I honestly, when I went through the show mm. to list to, to pick out my favourite pieces, Dan Collins, I found it really hard. I had at least a half a dozen excellent pieces of content to yeah. share. Yeah, and the one that I'm going to start with was I think it's one of the most profound questions, and it came off the same question, like you know, how do you put yourself in the moment? when you're at the Olympic Games with so much on the line. Mm. And he said, he asked himself a question. Rather than spoil it, let's have a listen to what that question was. Another golden moment. Sally Pearson is coming away from this. Orishi Harper's coming through very strongly. Well, Pearson gets it, I think, from Harper. From the Mojo Radio Show. Was there a process you went through to really, truly focus and be there when there was so much on the line? Oh, I think so much of your training kicks in. You know, like you you practice and practice and practice and prepare and, 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 and do it thousands and thousands of times that um, and, and you replay it in your head and um, when you get to um, when you get to the big stage, which is a pressure cooker, um, you want to be in a situation where physically um, you're on autopilot. So you don't want to be thinking about things um, on the big stage, you sort of your preparation has prepared you really well for that moment. But then there's the coping with the emotions of the big moment. And um, I, you know, my first Olympics, I absolutely stuffed up because 
Uh, firstly, we, 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 we didn't prepare well. Um, we went there with all the wrong attitude. And secondly, in the big moment, we, um, we, 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 we crumbled with the pressure got to us. So I fast forward four years and um, we, we, we did enormous, an enormous build up and a fantastic preparation. But on the big stage, when it counted the most, what we, what we learned to do was discipline our mind to focus on, for me, focus on what was important right now. As a process, um, I'd always know what the end outcome want, we wanted, but we never really got ahead of ourselves. It was, we, we, knew, we knew exactly what we needed to be doing now for that, out, that outcome in the future to materialise. So, um, and you've got to discipline your mind to that because if you think too far in the future, it's amazing what the brain, the brain paints a pretty awesome, pretty ordinary picture sometimes, you know, like <laughs> uh, of, what, of what may or may not happen. And then what happens is because you're, you're you know, you, you become the prophet of your future, mm. if, you don't, um, if you don't see what you want to see, then, then worry and stress turns up. Whereas if you just focus on, what is it I'm required to be really good at right in this moment? Then, and you discipline your mind to that, that. Then I think you have much more chance of showing up on the line with the energy and the fortitude to uh, to take advantage of the situation, which is perform at your best. So, um, I, I think the, the key to that is is um, being responsible by placing your thoughts where they need to be, and. Um, and, and that thought process is a discipline process. So you, you can't get good at it straight away. You've got to live it over a period of time to get really mentally resilient so mm. that you can place, place your thoughts where they need to be. And uh, like I, I look at my first Olympics and we stuffed it. So mm. we, we weren't good at that where it took us a period of time to learn how to do that. Such a powerful question is to stop no matter where you are, what you're doing. If you want to put yourself in the moment, think about what is it that I'm required to be really good at in this moment, whether it be with your family, sport, health, training, eating lunch, big presentation, facilitating a meeting or lining up for a race. Mm. Right now, what am I required to be really good at in this moment? It's a cracker. It's a it's a cracker. Yeah, it's amazing stuff, isn't it? It's just like, like, we, like I said at the beginning of the show, the way these guys think, you know, we can all do it, but it's, you know, it's, it just puts your mind in such a different place. Um, mm. I've actually got one that I'm going to throw in here. Now, not necessarily an Olympian as such, but certainly a man who's been involved in Olympics over many years. Um, Australian broadcaster Ray Warren has um, certainly been uh, a part of the Olympic picture in Australia, not so not yeah. as an athlete, but as a broadcaster. Now, Absolutely. we spoke to him oh, over a year ago. Now, Rabs is such an amazing person, as as we sort of found in that interview. I actually went back to him just to sort of just to get a different perspective. And Rabs talked about his the influence of his parents had on him as he was growing up. Just have a listen to this. We talked at the start about the dream you had as a six-year-old kid. Um, mm. Tell me, what, what part did your parents play in helping you achieve your dream? Oh, that's, that's a very good question because, and I'm not giving myself a rap here, but I think a lot of people tend to think that people like myself were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and... Uh, mm. That's not the case with me, I can assure you. I, 
was raised in a very small weatherboard cottage. Um, we shared bedrooms, me and my brother, and there was no no um, hot water. We didn't have a shower. We had a bath. The, it was an outside dunny. Um, we didn't have a washing machine. We we had a fuel stove, all of these things. I'm just rat, rat, rattling off a few things to you. But mm. at the end of the day, when I started rolling marbles down a slope in the home, mum and dad maybe scratched their head and said, what is this bloke doing? But what they, what they did know was that every Saturday, they, having a gamble on the horses like threepence or sixpence, uh, we were listening in the kitchen. The, the kitchen was the hub of our life and didn't go to the lounge room, we wouldn't go to the lounge room unless the people were enemies. That's where we entertained <laughs> our enemies, down in the lounge room. But in the kitchen, we did everything. And one of the main things in the kitchen was not only the fuel stove to warm your bum on, but the, the valve radio was up there and Ken Howard was blaring through every Saturday. That was the only day we got races. Mm. And suddenly this kid is rolling marbles down a slope and trying to sound like Ken Howard. And as he gets a little bit older, he wants to get into radio and be and be Ken Howard. Mm. As far as helping him become a race caller, rolling marbles, remembering their names according to colours, and how do we take this kid to the next level, which is to get him into radio. They played no other part than to encourage me by saying that was good or when the family would come together for Christmas, uh, I think Dad would become the bookmaker and they'd be betting on the result of the marble races. So <laughs> that's the extent of the encouragement that I got. The, the poor buggers had no idea how to help me. In yeah, fact, yeah. I think at some stage they probably thought, what have we bred here? This is a lunatic, you know. <laughs> Still important encouragement though, Rabs, very important. I oh, know. Well, they never said stop doing that. You're no. crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and they died... Um, after I'd got into radio and television and mm. uh, called Melbourne Cups and a few other things. So eventually they uh, they were able to just share a part of uh, the dream yeah. when it had in fact become a reality. Yeah. And I'm pretty pleased about that. Mum, mum died in um, 88 and Dad yeah. died in um, 96. So yeah. they, they knew that I had reached my dream. They knew that yeah. it had become a reality, but... The poor devils, they had no way of of knowing how to help me. More gold medals than we can keep up with. Anamirs goes to the lead. Pendleton, I think, is a spent force. It's Anamirs winning gold. The Mojo Show's Olympic Best Of Special. I know family's important to you, Gaz, and, and family's certainly important to me. And I just love the way that Rabs tells the story that, you know, his parents didn't know what to do. There, there was nothing they could physically do to help him. All they could do was encourage him. Mm. And and just just... The thinking, oh, well, look, you know, Rabs is going to have his race. Let's take a few bets and let's, you know, let's make it real for him and all that sort of – I just think that's fantastic. And what what more encouragement could a kid want or ask for, you know, than, than to have that? Can I tell you what? He's gone on to have an amazing career. I mean, Ray Warren is the voice of sport in Australia, particularly rugby league, and he was and still is one of the great sporting broadcasters in our country. And I remember mm. Rabs so often calling the Olympics in the swimming pool. And just, I guess, digressing slightly, but when you and I talked about doing this show, one mm. of the sporting events 
at the Olympics, which always stands out in my mind as being one of the great sporting moments of a true champion. And the, the comment that the commentator made when this guy won from 9-8 was, you can never write off a champion. And mm -hmm. Kieran Perkins won his second gold medal in the 1500 out in lane eight, wasn't seen as a favourite, hadn't particularly been swimming well leading up to it. Mm. Uh, let's just play this bit and have a listen to a true champion doing what he did so well. 15 metres to swim. This is rare gold. The best kind of gold. Perkins goes in first. What a great win. And a race for second. A race for the silver. Smith and Kowalski. They come down to the wall. So not only an Australian win, Gaz, but Australian 1-2, we should emphasise. That'd be a Quinella. That would be a Quinella in Rab's speak. Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're going to go from we're going to go from Australian athletes to British athletes. Mm. And for all our friends listening in Europe, and particularly in the UK, you will know the name Roger Black. Roger was a guest on the show a number of months back and is one of the great British athletes of all time. He mm. won a silver medal at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996, running second to the amazing and probably the greatest 400-meter runner of all time, Michael Johnson. What was interesting was that going into the race, Roger had a mindset of what he wanted to achieve during that race at the Olympics. This is a story Roger told to me personally some 15 or 20 odd years ago, and it's stuck in my mind ever since. I asked him whether he had recalled a conversation he and I had many, many years ago about that race in the Olympic final up against Michael Johnson. Four, three, two, one, Another gold moment from the Mojo Radio Show. Roger, I don't know if you remember one of the conversations we had, but I said to you, you just raced the 1996 400-metre final against arguably one of the greatest 400-metre runners ever. Like Michael Johnson was, was the man. You lined up at the blocks and I said to you, mate, did you really believe you could beat Michael Johnson? And you said something mm -hmm. very profound to me. You did, and it's it's something that has stuck with me to this day through everything that I do. Can you remember what that answer was? Yeah. Um, d did I really deep in myself believe I could beat Michael? No. Um, I wasn't thinking at all about beating Michael. I I I was thinking what what everyone at that level really does when when you're at the very very highest level, and everyone around you is exceptional. The only thing in that moment is to is to can I execute my perfect race? Can I absolutely cross that line, look back and know that I could not have run any faster? I knew that I could only influence that. I could not influence the outcome of the race. And all things being equal, Michael was going to win. I had no reference in my athletic life that I could on that day suddenly beat Michael. I didn't go there. You know, Michael, would, I took him out of the equation. And, 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 but don't get, don't get me wrong, I've been around long enough to know that Michael still had to win the race. And the greatest compliment ever paid to me, ever, was an hour of 40 minutes after that race, in the first moment with just myself and Michael Johnson sitting in a room before waiting to meet the world's press with his head in his hand going, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. And I said, come on, Mike, what do you mean? You can't believe it. And he said, Roger, you are never going to give me this gold medal, ever. He said, I've raced you for years and I know I have to race you. This is a guy who was so much better than me and the rest of the world. That's the mark of the man. He never got complacent. So Michael knew that he could have made a mistake. Still probably would have won, but he could have pulled a hamstring. You know, yes, anything can happen. Um, for me, 
to try and beat Michael Johnson, I wouldn't have won a medal because I couldn't do what he did in, uh, between 200 metres and 300 metres. I won't go into the details. So it's all where you focus your energy. And my focus, and this is easier said than done, to run in the Olympic final and to take everyone else out of the equation and to just focus on running your perfect race. It took me years to master. You know, the thing that has always occurred to me is that people are always, whether it be in business or in community or in sport, we're always thinking and competing with the other guy. Mm. And I have found, particularly being on a corporate speaking circuit, if you're on a podium with a number of other speakers, before I met Roger and went through it, I used to always compete with those guys and be, be worried about how they performed and what they did. And I'd be so focused on them, I'd forget to focus on myself. Mm. And having heard him say that and reiterate it on the Mojo radio show, it really reinforced the fact now that it's about what, what have you got to do to deliver to bring your perfect race, mm. you know, your perfect team, your perfect relationship your perfect business outcome, your perfect presentation, your perfect speech at a wedding. And it really does change the whole complex. And I think if you tie that back to what Dan Collins said about what have I got to do right now mm. to be my absolute best, deliver the outcome that I need to deliver, I think that that starts to give us a sense of being in the moment and delivering, which is kind of that Olympic thinking that we keep going back to, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take that a step further too, um, it would seem Roger and three of his mates asked themselves that same question at a World Championships where they managed to knock off the well-fancied US relay team, right? Well, the US had a stranglehold basically on the 4x400 on mm. the track. Mm. Mm. And Roger and Chris Akabusi and the other guys all sat and had a conversation amongst themselves mm. to say, well, how would they take on the best in the world in the world champs? And here's what happened. Another Mojo Show soap on a rope moment. Can Akabusi do it? Akabusi has a go, and the American is beaten, and he's fighting back, Akabusi has made it, Akabusi, goal for Britain, America second, and Jamaica third. Well, well that race, just to give people the, the background, in 1991, uh, a team of four Brits who on paper were not as good as the four Americans, um, came from behind to become world champions. Um, it was a big, a big deal, it was almost the, the perfect theatre you know, the four underdogs coming back. The reason we won, actually, was that we dared to do something different and we, we challenged convention. In the relay, usually you put your fastest athlete on the last lap. Let, lap. That's what people do. We realized that we couldn't do that because if you're out of contention, as soon as the gun goes, it's very hard to, 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 to get back into the race. So we changed the running order. So I went first. I was the world silver medalist that year. I went first as the fastest runner. And we almost did it in reverse. And then our second fastest runner, Derek Redman, went second. A guy called John Regis went third, and then a guy called Chris Akabusi ran last. Um, came from behind to, to win gold. But the, the lesson there, absolutely, is that, is that it was, it was a, a relatively small change. We just, took, we just moved the running order around a bit. But the lesson was, was that we dared to win. We did something different. We, we changed the winning formula. Um, and, and more importantly, we took accountability for our performance as a team rather than being told by the management what to do because actually the management were quite resistant to that change. And that ownership gave us a sense of um, power, a sense of, of real accountability and belief in each other. And, and it was that 
um, and daring to do something different. Um, and also having a very strong belief that, that, that we had the ability, that Chris had the ability on the last lap to beat the guy who, who, who was going to run last because he'd just beaten me just to win the world championships so 400 metres two days earlier and I, I should have won the race. So Chris knew, because he trained with me every day, he knew what it would take to, to just get past him. Um, so there are so many lessons from it, but it, it's probably the most famous race that I ever ran in. In the end, it, at the time, it was just a running race. But actually, in, in reflection, you realize that the principles applied to that decision. And then as a result of making that decision, the accountability and then running for each other, not just running for ourselves. You also you got to understand you've got four individual athletes who have spent most of the year competing against each other who come together as a team. And, and that was easier said than done, but we worked on that. You know, we were able to put our egos to one side. We were able to realize that there are two hats to wear. One is your individual hat when you do your individual, but there's a team hat to wear when you're, t- when you're in the team. And a lot of people couldn't wear those two hats. A lot of people struggled just to go from being an individual to a team. We didn't, and we created a culture within that, that squad that, that if you were to be in that squad, you had to put your, leave your ego at the door. The Mojo Radio Show's Olympic Special. So for me... That's that's clever thinking. I mean, to actually take a formula that uh, a formula that's worked for eons, flip it on, on on its head and go. Well, instead of trying to catch them at the end, let's get out in front and stay in front. That's clever thinking. Well, there's a, as Roger said during the piece, there's a lot of lessons in it. But in this age of innovation, creativity, and progression, if you're not changing a winning formula then you're probably standing still. If you're standing still in today's age, you're probably going backwards. So mm. it was actually a very good interview. It was a lot of good, profound stuff where people like Dan Collins and Roger can straddle that arena of sport mm. and then apply it to our own personal lives and our own business lives. And uh. the challenge for us and all our listeners is to take this stuff write it down in their journals, and then do something with it. And one guy that I've been very impressed with, and I've spent a little bit of time with him now, we interviewed him on the show only a matter of weeks ago, was uh, Matt Formston, who is the current world UCI paracycling champion, who's on his way to Rio to represent Australia in mm. the Paralympics, mm. and he's legally blind, and he'll be hitting the indoor cycling track with his partner, his pilot, to take on the best in the world. And Matt's interesting because he's legally blind. He is a dad with a couple of kids. He works in the corporate world for one of Australia's big telcos. He is doing a lot of engineering and changes, innovating around the bike that he rides with his pilot partner. He's consulting to people and he's an athlete who's about to represent in the Olympics. So you can imagine how busy his day is. And I asked him how important rituals and compartmentalization was to him and his performance. Another gold moment from the Mojo Radio Show. You must be very ritualized and you must be able to compartmentalize very well. Would they be two secrets or tools that you use in order to be able to get through your day to achieve all the things that you have dreamt of doing? 100%. And I think it's that's the way I do it. So I would never say to anyone, 100% you have to do it this way. Um, yeah. But I know that some of the people I've worked with and when they've implemented compartmentalization, it's, it's given them a lot more efficiency. Because we get distracted, right? And when you're being distracted, you're not efficient. 
Um, so for me, it's just about being 100% focused on the task at hand and I'll block that into hours. So my calendar's locked out into certain hours for certain tasks and I do those, I do those tasks for those hours and I don't think about anything else. And then when the next task gets its allocated block of time, I do that task. And obviously I get calls here and the, the phone's going all day, so I'll take certain calls, but sometimes if I'm blocked out, if I need to get something done, I'll just don't answer on the phone for a couple of hours. And then as soon as that time's out, because most of my like my corporate job and my, my consultancy is all about relationships, so I have to call people back and I pride myself on that. So um, I'll call people back straight away. And, and, and then also by doing that, I'm ticking that off. So I don't, have, I don't have this pile of calls after a day or two days to call back um, and people understand that if, if you say I'm busy and, and you're very outcome focused and people know that you generate results, they won't waste your time. He was an amazing interview, that guy. I really enjoyed that 45 odd minutes we spent with him. I, inspirational is not even enough of a word for what I felt for him or, or about <laughs> him. You know, it's like, you know, talking, he was talking about playing rugby, you know, with what's he got? 5% of his vision and 5% vision. stuff like that. Just, just not letting it stop him, you know, just mm. not letting it stop him do one thing that he wants to do blows me out of the water. Um, yeah. But I guess, I guess if you want to talk about inspirational um, and, and going back to um, our, our favorite Olympic moments, I'm going to go back to 1984 here. Um, and there's an Australian weightlifter, a guy called Dean Lucan. Now, for oh, those who don't know Dean, Big Dean. Big Dino. Dean was, he's a mountain of a man. He still is. He, in fact, his son is now also a weightlifter. But he was a tuna fisherman in Tasmania, a little island off the bottom of Australia for those from of our overseas guests. He was a tuna fisherman. He didn't do anything else. He, li- he weightlifted on weekends. He got himself into the Australian Olympic team and went to the 1984 Olympics and was lifting against, obviously, the greatest weightlifters in the world. No, no sort of, no science behind it, no nothing else, just sheer determination. Let's have a listen to what happened. So now if he gets this 240, he'll take the gold away from Mario Martinez. This is going to be a tremendous effort. He's got two lifts in which to do it. It's five kilos heavier than he's ever oh, lifted look before. At this. My word, this tremendous. is encouraging. Now can he jerk it? Yes, he's he got can. It. Tremendous he's got it. effort. Oh, has he? Let's yes, wait on he's it. got it. Let's wait and see. There he's got three right It's right. a gold medal to Dean Lucan of Australia. What a tremendous effort. And Have a look at the So, guys, they don't say it in there, but Dean actually walked out and had two lifts to lift five kilos more than he had ever lifted before in his life. Mm. And he did it on the first lift. It's just a great story, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? You know, like competing against guys who, you know, had some of the best trainers in the world. Here's this Aussie guy who steps up and just nails it. Well, I think it just gave at that time and probably even even now you look back at Big Dean and it just gives you the feeling that anything's possible. But yes. There's a guy, just a great Aussie, having a crack up against the best, just doing what he does best, putting everything else aside. But he's the sort of guy that would have – Grabbed his gold, got off the podium and going, where's the nearest beer? Where's, yeah, the, where's the nearest pub? Where, where, can I get, where can I get a pie and a schooner? <laughs> just, just great stuff. Just yeah. great stuff. Yeah, I love now, it. Now, before we um, finish up, mm. uh, I found another piece which I really liked a lot and I think it ties back in some ways to the sort of mentality and mental toughness that a guy like – Dean Lucan, or actually somebody else we should talk about and play is Kathy Freeman, who we'll play in just a second. But 
mental toughness I've always found to be a great topic to ask these guys about. And one of the things Dan Collins, who was a an Olympian for Australia in kayaking, and is now a very successful business consultant, and it's easy to see why. In the episode that, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, the episode that we interviewed Dan Collins, and it was a terrific show, I asked him about the voices of doubt that go through one's mind when competing. And he had some really interesting insights into how we handle those voices. Another Mojo Show Soap on a Rope moment. What, what do you go through when you have that voice of doubt? What's your, what's your own thinking, your process? What's your own dialogue? Yeah, great question. <laughs> yeah, that's an awesome question. So, um, look, I think the first thing is, is I, actually, I, I actually thought I was abnormal when I was early in my, <laughs> early in my athletic career because I, I thought I was the only one climbing a DAX. So I, I was the only one who was scared. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> you know? So, but as I got later on and I talked to other athletes and I did research and study, I realised that we're all scared. We all have those, mm. we all have fears around um, being good enough to take the opportunity, good enough to get the girl, make the sale, um, turn up on time. We all have those fears, right? Um, but, but for me, it started with realising that first and foremost, oh, that's normal. We've all got them. So that's the first thing. I think you've got to recognise that that this is something that's really important to me and I'm worried about it or, mm. I'm, or, I'm, or I'm fearful of it. And I think just being able to realise that first and foremost is, is a good recognition because um, without recognising or, or having that forefront, then you won't be able to solve it. You won't be able to solve the issue. Um, the, the second one, the second part of it is, is, is in my view, is, is um, as opposed to focusing on the outcomes that may or may not materialise, I focus on, for me, what is it that I need to be doing? So I, I go to planning stage pretty quickly. So I think about what I need to be doing now. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, that's massively helpful because you start to take action. And I, I'm of the view, if you, if, you start off, if you start off knowing what you want to achieve and you begin to act, then um, a big part of moving forward is realising that, first and foremost, it's normal to be frightened, normal to be scared, not normal to have worries. Second mm-hmm. one is, is when you're acting, sometimes things won't work out. And I think we see failure completely wrong in the business world. So I'll give an example. In When, I was, when we were training myself and Andrew Trim, um, we would walk into the gym in some days knowing that we would fail consistently. Um, and what I mean by that is, is we would take a level of action that our bodies and our minds at some point would break. So, yep. And in doing so, we found our limits. So for me, that was the feedback. Uh, hey, these are my limits, and this is, where my, this is where I can grow and be better. So for me, it's how we see failure as well. So if we saw failure more as a, as a feedback mechanism of where I'm at now, then it's not doesn't it's not the end of the journey, but the start of it. Um, yeah, and and I think we see failure as so much as the end of the journey, whereas really it's it's just life or the situation or someone else giving you a bit of feedback to say you're not good enough yet. And we have huge issues with not good enough being 
Whereas really you should be just concentrating on the, well, the yet bit. So what do I need to do next to be good enough? Um, and it takes, I think it takes a bit of pressure off, um, you know, realising, you, when you realise you're going to fail, it takes a bit of pressure off, I reckon. And in that failure is your, is your greatest growth opportunity. The thing is, what I took from that piece with Dan, and we heard it when we talked to Roger and Drew a number of times I interviewed him, is that, we all have that voice, and I think it was mm. just gratifying for him with the sort of people he's working with in business and as an athlete lining up in the Olympics is that we all have that voice of doubt. We all have to deal with it. It's mm. okay. Mm. It's then how you refocus yourself, and that's why I like that earlier piece we played that he said to refocus yourself when you have that voice of doubt is to raise the question, what am I required to do right in this moment to be really good? Yeah. And uh, just usable, practical stuff from these great athletes who mm. straddle that world of the personal world, sport, and business. And it's obvious hearing them talk that they're as disciplined with their personal world mm. as they are with their sporting world and how they put that into the work they're doing with their clients. So mm. Um, mm. I, I, I've got to say we've had some really good guests on that, that share their great Olympic thinking, which – Really, we all have a choice of whether we want to access or not. You know what I love about that bit in particular is the me and the now because mm. it just says it all, doesn't it? It just it, – it's, it's this is the moment that you've been working for. Your coach can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself and now is the only time you're going to get the chance. I've got to say I think, I think this show really has gotten onto something and mm. I hope people – take it away and implement this stuff because you do hear it spoken of so often mm. about being in the moment, being present, enjoying what's happening right now. But mm. in talking to Drew, Matt Formerson talked about his process of visualisation. Mm. Certainly Dan Collins talked about it, but they're all accessed easily. It's all stuff we can do and it's so powerful. And I think if we just start practicing it, we can become better and better at it. Mm. And it's something Roger talked about in his show as well is one of the questions he has challenged himself and Steve Backley, who's his business partner, is reducing the space between talent and performance. Mm. And one way to do that is to ask yourself the right questions and be in the moment and to turn up and question yourself, say, what have I got to do right now to be really, really good right this mm. minute? Mm and then use your senses. So we're getting a theme through all the shows, like you're saying, and I think it's really um, – I think it's gold, Robert. I do. Speaking of gold, we've got to end the show, but I, we can't end the show, I don't think, without our two – your favourite moment and my favourite moment from any Olympics. Absolute gold. If someone said to you, you know, I need the absolute finite moment that you just went, wow, I can't believe that that person just did that, what would it be? At an Olympic Games. Uh, probably Cathy Freeman. You would mean this one. Gavala and Mary are right up. It's going to be a big finish. Into the slate, Graham leads. Freeman runs up to her. Mary inside. Cathy lifting. Goes up to Graham. Takes the lead. Looks a winner. Draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory. A magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. It's brilliant. And I've got to say also... What a legend, what a champion. Bruce McAvaney, one of the great Olympic callers 
of all time. Yeah, indeed. My um, uh, an ex girlfriend of mine in Perth, her her old man, a, a guy called David Christensen, and g'day to Dave if he's listening. Um, calls the hockey for Channel Seven for the Olympics, and is obviously good mates with Bruce, and. Apparently, Bruce is just the encyclopedia of sports. Like, no notes, no nothing, just total recall of all these facts and figures that he always pulls out during um, during calls. What an amazing guy! Drew Ginn actually put out a tweet just last week, and he said on his flight to Rio, because he's calling the rowing. Mm. He sat behind Bruce McAvaney, and he sat there for the whole flight watching Bruce McAvaney work in his journal. Yeah, and his tweet was. Masterclass. <laughs> How good's that? Well, I've got a masterclass for you because this, for me, this is the way to end the show. I, I'm not talking Summer Olympics. I'm talking Winter Olympics. I'm going to play you this and say no more. And oh no, here's the bell. One lap for gold. He's reaching back for one more gear. Trying to hold up Lee. They bump. They bump. words, Stephen Bradbury. Now for those, and because he's probably only famous in Australia, for our American and overseas guests, Stephen was in the final of the 1000 metre short track speed skating pursuit at the Winter Olympics. And he was coming fifth, which is last. (laughs) But on the last corner, the four people in front of him fall over, Stephen takes gold. (laughs) Okay. But the great thing about this is there's two other famous Australian sportscasters, uh, Roy and HG, This Sporting Life. They had an Olympic television show called The Dream. They interviewed Stephen after the race. Have a listen to his race plan. We pick up the race with five laps to go. You're at the rear of the field. What were you thinking here, Stephen? Well, I went in with the same plan as uh, the semi-final, was, yes. which was to sit at the back and, and hope that there was a lot of collisions because I didn't think... <laughs> <laughs> if ever... There was a true Australian and a true Australian game plan. Just sit at the back and hope everyone else falls over. There you have it. But I think the other thing is, number one, he had to get there. Yes, Number two is you've got to be in it to win it. You've got to have a crack. Absolutely. And number three, I think the other thing that I take from a lot of the guys we've interviewed and I think Roger Black, Drew Ginn, and a lot of the athletes, they're humbled. And I've got to say I think humility – is a great Australian trait Mm. and I think it's a great sporting champion trait. Mm. But to have the humility to be able to say, that was my game plan and what's more, (laughs) it it came off. (laughs) It did happen, look. It's just gold. And let me just play you this, just one more little piece because it's self-explanatory and I think it sums up everything you're trying to say. Were you tempted, Steve, to stop and help him up? (laughs) (laughs) How did it feel though when all that happened in front of you? Oh, it was... It was very scary, I guess. Um, everybody went down in front of me and I was like, oh, my God, I think I, think I just won. <laughs> you can't get much more Aussie than that. No, what a great way to finish the show. Yeah, we're out. We're out. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking.
See you next time.